0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Friday, February 24th. But Full.com contributor Dan Klein is joining me today on another visit to Full Headquarters. So we're pre recording this episode for March 7th. Dan, how are you? So basically, we're coming to you from the future. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, I feel like I have seen more of you now <laughs> since you moved 1,000 miles away. To Florida than when you were just up the coast of Connecticut.
1: It's funny. It's actually easier and cheaper to fly here from Florida than it was from Connecticut. Fair enough. And it benefits that uh, BWI, which is about an hour from here, is a stopover on any flight you make. So there are times you see me just because I play the advantage and sort of do a layover, rather than, you know, just get out as fast as I can. So, you're stuck with me a little bit.
0: Well, that's fine. Uh, I'm always very happy. See, he says,
1: fine. He should be a little more excited. I'm always very happy <laughs> to have
0: people, uh, or have my guests, at least, in studio with me. It makes uh, my life, and I think the show, a lot more dynamic. But um, we have some great stories to discuss uh, today. And first off, I think, uh, I think it'd be appropriate, at least, for us to give an update on a story that you and I actually covered uh, last year regarding the now struggling merger between uh, the Outdoors Outfitters, Bass Pro Shops, and Cabela's. So, we will look at uh, after that, we'll look at the telecom industry. And uh, if we have a little time, I want to riff a little about the growing importance of delivery to retailers across a wide variety of sectors. But first, for the Bass Pro and Cabela story so the deal between these companies was first announced last October. Uh, it was months after Cabela's management team had announced to the investor community that it would be pursuing uh, quote unquote strategic alternatives. And that's Basically, CEO speak for, you know, we're struggling, we're kind of at a bit of a loss for what to do, and we're considering something drastic, maybe a sale, restructuring, management change, uh, what have you. So, Bass Pro, which is privately held, they offered to buy out their competitor for about $65.50 per share. Uh, That comes out to a $4.5 billion deal. And it would give the combined entity a pretty substantial network of about 180 stores and 40,000 employees. And these stores are special
1: massive and unlike a lot of competing retail chains this isn't Lowe's and Home Depot where they're always across the street from each other these are two companies that because the stores are such destinations you know with with things like archery ranges and you know fishing holes inside and the wildlife stores
0: museums within yeah, the stores restaurants
1: sure. generally these are very geographically spread out so there was a lot of supply chain logic and besides marketing and all the other logic you can put into combining them, there was a lot of geographic reason for combining these two chains. But a lot has changed, which I think you wanted to talk about.
0: Sure, sure. So keep in mind, uh, so the stock was trading at about fifty five dollars immediately. Before the deal announcement, and it jumped about fifteen percent to over sixty three dollars after the news came out, which makes sense, right? Offer price around sixty five fifty. Usually, when you have a deal like this, uh, the you know the company being acquired, their shares will approach parity with the offer price, right? Usually a little bit below. Mm-hmm. So this is. Uh, uh, you know, very common with these deals uh, involving publicly traded companies, but there's uh, a big caveat in that what started off as really promising. I think, uh, you know, what you mentioned in terms of having them having very complementary uh, geographic footprints with some overlap, but overall, you know, not too much.
1: This wasn't going to be a merger where you saw a lot of closures. Sure. You know, you might see some upper management cash out and leave, but you weren't going to see widespread layoffs and well, you know, while I've never worked at these companies. Culturally, everything I've read is that these are places that were pretty compatible. It wasn't going to be, but the merger is running into problems for sort of the same reason. And there's a couple of reasons, but mm-hmm. one of them is sort of what happened with Office Depot and Staples. There's regulatory concerns because they are the two major players in this space. And I think what and and there have been some other small bankruptcies of lesser players. Yeah. There, The reason I think this is silly, and we've talked about it, is the competition isn't Cabela's versus Bass Pro Shops or even Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops versus Dick's. It's any physical retailer versus the internet. Mm -hmm. So you can buy a fishing rod on Amazon. You can buy all, not all, but a lot of the things you could buy in these stores. Maybe not a handgun, but you can buy a lot of stuff online. So Keeping physical retail strong would make sense to me, but I don't think regulators have quite caught up to the logic that we're in sort of a full bore retail crisis in this country.
0: And the thing with the regulators, too, is it's kind of murky, right? So just two days before the new year, I think it was December 30th, uh, Cabela's announced that the FTC had issued a request for additional information regarding the deal. So this is not a coffin nail by any means, right? No, it's. But investors. Often interpret it that way, so that shaved a few dollars off the stock. And then, in terms of the other roadblocks that you mentioned, um, you know, we have another part of the transaction, which is, you know, Cab- Cabela's has their branded credit card operation. So that was supposed to go to Capital One Financial in a separate kind of side deal, but now a necessary uh, side deal. Yeah, exactly. And on that end, you know, regulatory approvals have similarly been difficult to lock down, and the agreement with Capital One uh, overall actually might be falling par- apart. In that. It put in an application to acquire the credit card business uh, with essentially the office of the control of the currency, but they're running into some snags where uh, basically when that application will come through or whether it's going to be denied is uncertain. They're running into issues with uh, money laundering probe that's happening at Capital One right now, which would essentially prevent them to refile in time. There's a deadline in October. Essentially, that the companies need to meet. So all these things are essentially coming together to kind of mess up this other side deal as well. And then I kind of top things off uh, I think it was just last week or earlier this month, Cabela's re- released its uh, fourth quarter results and they were rather discouraging. So for the quarter revenue down 5% year over year and this is what you mentioned in terms of the retail store versus the online store. You know, specifically their retail stores were down 4.3% whereas their online catalog, catalog business Declined over 12 percent. Very bad sign for in terms of you know a long-term strategy. And then their comparable store sales were down 6.5 percent. It's especially troubling when you consider that part of the reason that they have these
1: destination event stores is actually to drive digital sales. Mm-hmm. Like I might take my kid and go look and lay in a lot of sleeping bags and play with stuff and buy some fudge at Cabela's and do all the different things. <laughs> But later on, I'm going to sit down and order some hiking boots that I tried on online. That's how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. So if they're losing 12% digital sales, the overall sales market demand for these products did not go away. It means that Amazon or Dicks or somebody else is taking this business. Yep,
0: absolutely. I uh, and going uh, more into detail on some of the you know financial results that they reported you know the profit margins also shrunk from 2015 their net income uh, was down 22% despite revenue for the year being up 3%. So not surprisingly that shaved and, more off the stock it's trading at 46 dollars now.
1: Those fourth quarter numbers are bad by retail is not doing well standards. Those are you know people are flipping out when companies are reporting 2% down. So, when you're starting to see 4 and 5% and 12% digitally, when most people are growing 8 or 9% and some even more than that, mm-hmm. those are not good numbers.
0: Yeah. And I will add, <laughs> as if it wasn't enough, all these things coming up, all these roadblocks, we have one more story kind of, uh, you know, off on the side, you know, a competitive dynamic, really, is with Gander Mountain. So, very much operates in this space, uh, outdoors equipment, think firearms, hunting, archery, things that you mentioned. So, they are... Uh, also in the midst of filing for bankruptcy, uh, they really ex- uh, went through a very rapid store expansion in the past five years. I think it opened something like 50 plus locations at that time. Uh, maybe got a little bit ahead of themselves, and as a result, uh, you know they're going through the bank- bankruptcy filing process. But it really, I think, that might hurt. Their deal, uh, the Cabela's Bass Pro deal, a little bit in terms of you know people can point to this and say, hey, the the competitive environment now is weakened even more. But I think overall it shows us that you know this is a pretty tough space to be in. Uh, We saw a lot of athletic retailers uh, go belly up essentially in the past year with Sports Authority, City Sports, Eastern Mountain Sports, among many others, and uh, it, it, it. it's a tough deal if, if physical retail especially physical retail on this size these aren't mall locations these are standalone
1: malls more or less yeah if these are going to survive we have to have different rules for them and while while you might not want to see the only two competitors direct competitors in this space combine, there's enough other options to buy this stuff that they don't have a monopoly and They don't have the cheapest cost structure when competing with digital-only plays. Mm -hmm. So, it's very hard to see why this would be denied. And what I see happening is, the Capital One deal is going to delay it. There's going to be absolute problems in hitting the deadlines, Mm -hmm. and they're going to have to renegotiate the price. And even if they break up, much like I think with Staples and Office Depot, at some point, whether it's regulatory concerns or the companies not being able to agree, the market is going to force this. We don't need two giant outdoor retailers competing for maybe not customers so much as volume discounts and other and other things. You're not going to drive 3 hours out of your way to go to Bass Pro if there's a Cabela's a, a half hour from sure. you. But Realistically, this has to happen. It just may not happen by the October deadline.
0: Yep. And I will say, uh, I'll mention again uh, Cabela Shares trading right around $46 now. Remember that off a price around 65 So that discrepancy, you know, a lot of uncertainty now, I think, priced into the stock. Um, and maybe that original uh, very optimistic closing date that they had for mid 2017, not going to happen. But uh, I think everybody. Uh, with Capital One as well, is working hard to try and get this uh, to go through.
1: I think it's worth noting overall in retail that this is a good time to go private. Because if you're a publicly traded company and you're not showing quarter over quarter comparable sales growth, even if you're eking out better margins and doing well by a lot of methods, people tend to punish you. So, this is not a growth time. This is not an easy retail market it's really about you know being like jc penny and very carefully managing your costs so you can trim your loss down and doing sort of all the things at a private company people would applaud you for surviving and as a public company you're going to have to close stores that are break even instead of sort of waiting out and seeing the landscape and kind of marrying what you're doing to what the demand is i don't think we know where demand is going to shake out, buying a fishing rod online may be a bad experience for people. And three years from now, when they need a new one, maybe they'll go over to a physical store where they can actually handle one.
0: Sure. Okay, so I'd like to turn our attention now to the telecom industry. Um, so first, for more of a consumer-facing topic. Uh, you mentioned there have been some new reports released regarding, you know, essentially the quality of the networks among the big four players. Obviously, those being Verizon, AT and T, T-Mobile, and Sprint. Uh, so, who managed to come out on top?
1: Well, there's two very different reports. There's the Open Signal report, which is done using actual data from people's cell phones. It's you know billions of data points, and that report has Verizon and T-Mobile sort of neck and neck, and Sprint does okay, and AT and T's at the bottom. It's worth noting that even with all those differences, it's kind of 1 and 1A, 2A and 2B, and everybody's grouped pretty closely. Sure. The second report is the Root Metrics report, and that's the one Do you remember the Verizon commercials with all the balls where it showed how they won in every area?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Verizon dominates on this report. This is a report where they effectively drive around and do testing. Both companies argue that their methodology is correct. T-Mobile takes huge issues with the Root Metrics report every year, but Verizon wins he- dramatically. Mm-hmm. t mobiles about the same as they were a year ago. AT and T is number two in that report. Sprint is number three. But even Root Metrics more or less says for most people all of these are good enough. It's kind of the message Sprint is delivering in its commercials with the old Verizon. Uh, Guy, Paul? Can you hear me now, Yeah, can yes. you hear me now guy. It's basically this idea that, are you going to pay Verizon to be a little bit better? And they say 1% better. They might be more than 1% better. But for the average person who doesn't travel a ton, Verizon could be bad in their house and Sprint could be great, and that could be the small difference. Mm-hmm. So, for most people, it's actually worth trying T-Mobile or Sprint, which are the cheaper options and seeing if they work with your lifestyle because for the vast majority of us every network is good enough.
0: And I think that definitely applies as well if you live in a you know major metropolitan area or a larger metropolitan area and
1: that. and T-Mobile which is you know tied in the open signal report and clearly kind of number 4 in the root metrics report even root metrics acknowledges that they're very strong in urban areas. Mm-hmm. I use T-Mobile. We've talked about it. I live in West Palm Beach. I come here all the time. I have family in Connecticut, and Massachusetts. The only place I have problems with it is we have a family home in rural New Hampshire, and in the actual town I can't get service. And it's very clear on the T-Mobile map that there is no service. Mm-hmm. They have Wi-Fi calling. It's not a super big deal. Yeah. Like, so for most people, it's hard to imagine it's worth paying significantly more money for Verizon or AT&T.
0: Okay, so looking, uh, you know, more from the investor perspective now, um, you know, with the results of the report you mentioned, things close sounds like most of them are pretty close. Uh, in some cases, maybe neck and neck. But if you look at the financial results, it seems like T-Mobile was really continuing to to lead the pack with this very aggressive marketing and service offerings. It's definitely seeing, I think, the bulk of the growth in this industry. Um, the company reported its fourth quarter results a few weeks ago. It was actually on Valentine's Day, so revenue was up twenty three percent. Uh, net income was up 31%, and it made 8.2 million net customer additions in 2016, bringing its total tally, tally to 71.5 million. That's pretty impressive.
1: It, I mean, they're growing like gangbusters. And the, the reason T-Mobile is the strongest of these companies going forward, in my opinion, is they don't have to backtrack. They've been the aggressor in terms of cutting price, offering unlimited, building their infrastructure around their pricing structure. Whereas Verizon and AT&T had decades of overages, first for minutes. You remember when you had to buy minutes for your for your phone plan, or you paid by text message. Sure. So if like a friend sent you twenty text messages at night, you were like, oh, crud, that's eleven dollars or whatever it came to." <laughs> we saw those go away. Now we're seeing data overages mostly go away that was billions and billions of dollars baked into the AT&T, Verizon business models that T-Mobile has already sort of priced out. So, they've already sort of gone through those headaches of, you know, how are we still going to make? So, they've been refining operations and sort of making their margin based on adding people and being, you know, have more customers paying less rather than squeezing your best customers. And that's going to be a strategy that works. We've talked about this. It's going to force pricing down. We're already seeing, you know, Verizon and AT&T have both, in one case, gone unlimited with Verizon, and in AT&T's case, opened up unlimited to every customer, as opposed to bundled Direct TV customers. That's good news for consumers, and that good news is going to keep happening.
0: Yep. So, uh, to be clear, uh, on the T-Mobile side, I think it's fair to say, you know, the company's subscriber growth has pretty much dwarfed. The other, the other big three players, right? John John
1: Ledger would say they have 106 percent of the growth. I believe is what he said (laughs) when I saw him at CES.
0: So, um, and this is the, you know, you always have to keep in mind that. You know, especially if you're looking at the U.S. market, it's a very saturated, well-connected market. So, if you're picking up that kind of growth, you're you're probably taking it from the other players. And um, the stock has actually, since reporting uh, its earnings, has only fluctuated mildly, uh, despite I think what most people consider a pretty strong showing. But
1: well, they pre-reported, so the
0: yeah. So you hear some analysts point to conservative guidance, right, for 2017, but. Conservative guidance tends to be the case for this company. They tend to come out each quarter and say, "Oh, guess what? We're doing phenomenally well," and upping that as they go.
1: And I think there is a bit of a wild card that, as Verizon has reacted, they—I don't think they're going to hold on to their customers long term. But by offering unlimited, by by doing some better deals. The people who maybe were about to leave, maybe it's another two quarters. Maybe it takes another couple T Mobile, you know, uncarrier perks or whatever it is for them to switch. So you you know, maybe you would have seen three million net ads in the first quarter if Verizon hadn't gone unlimited, and maybe it'll only be a million, a million and a half or whatever the number is. But it's been a million plus for like three straight years or a little more than that, I think.
0: Okay, so I think big takeaway, uh, you know, on the consumers-facing side at least, uh, something that I had heard you mention when we were talking before the show a few times, and I can kind of see this coming through is you mentioned the word price war, and among in this industry, not all that uncommon,
1: right? Well, let's just look at the past few weeks. So Verizon comes out and offers unlimited, and one of the less reported parts of their unlimited deal was uh, ten gigabytes per phone of free mobile hotspot a 4G mobile hotspot. Sprint followed up immediately with a lower price and included the same thing that the 10 gigabyte 4G mobile hotspot. T-Mobile had to backtrack over its price, which had been a 3G hotspot, I think a 2G in some cases, and match the deal. So every time one of these companies makes a move and it's usually T-Mobile doing it first,
0: that's setting yeah, it's kind of blazing the trail. It, it
1: might take 6 months for AT&T and Verizon, but if Sprint does something T-Mobile follows. If T-Mobile does something So, you just saw T-Mobile came out with this plan where your taxes and fees are included in the advertised price. So, if if they say it's $70 for the first line, $30 for the second, $100 for two, unlimited everything, your actual bill, not counting your phone uh, payment plan, if you have one, is $100. It's not $100.35, it's $100. That lowered the price for existing customers. That doesn't happen. So then Sprint followed that by just lowering their overall prices. And you're you're just gonna see this over and over again until at some point it becomes, you know, essentially a commodity and they'll have to, you know, differentiate with service or you know, who can get a phone branded with Chewbacca on the back or whatever it happens to be. I don't know where Chewbacca came from, but it'll be somebody. Here's the thing, I had Chewbacca give my GPS directions, it didn't work that well. So.
0: Okay, and the last thing I wanted to touch on uh, really quickly, because at this point it's um, still kind of speculative, you know, some stories coming out now that Sprint is, uh kind of curating itself to be potentially to win a deal over with T-Mobile. Uh, what do you think? Well, Sprint and T-Mobile
1: talked before, mm-hmm. and it was always sort of one of those broker deals where uh, where Sprint would be the, ch- you know, one of their people would be chairman and John Ledger would be CEO. And it was sort of a, now it's become pretty clear that that Sprint's parent company has said, we will take a back seat. We, we will let John Ledger, who is a dynamic CEO be in charge of this and that paves the way for this from a would T-Mobile do it point of view but the problem with it is federal regulators have been very negative on the idea of the us market going from four to three now that could absolutely change. there's a new FCC and they're they're looking at it differently. there's mm-hmm. a new presidential administration sure they're looking at things who knows <laughs> um, that is as apolitical as I could get but the reality is, you've got Comcast and other players who could enter this market, and if there's a legitimate alternative fourth player in the space, or fifth player, then this deal becomes a lot more logical, and Sprint needs it. You know, There's a huge amount of ongoing capital investment in this business, and T-Mobile and Sprint Could dramatically cut their costs if they were one company, even though there's all sorts of technology hurdles to
0: that. Sure. Okay, uh, so we have a few more minutes here, and um, I just want to talk a little bit uh, about something an idea you you kind of presented to me that I thought was funny and that's the idea that a lot of companies in retail right now see delivery as like their next savior their next pathway to growth specifically right? and they specifically with restaurants so i was looking through options right now cuz you know it's still earlier on in this what you can call it a trend and there's a ton of, of competition. So, you have Grubhub, right, publicly traded, uh, probably the leading player, uh, You know, very much a nationwide presence. But then you also have things like Uber Eats, Yelp, Eat24, DoorDash, Postmates, and even Amazon Prime is throwing its weight in to Prime members.
1: Sure. And in my market where I live, there's a local company called Delivery Dudes. There's another startup called Cravy. And the problem with this is is they're competing for a limited piece of the pie. And we, we've talked about this on the show before. The reason pizza delivery or Chinese food delivery works is because soggy pizza is still awesome. You know, <laughs> Kung Pao chicken or General So or whatever it is you get from the Chinese place, throw it in the microwave and it's still pretty good. Sure. But one of the ones we joked about earlier is Bloomin' Brands, yes. which is Outback Steakhouse, Carrabba's, Bonefish Grill. They are talking about delivery, whether it be their own or a third party, being a big driver, their number 2 potential driver of sales beyond just improving their regular business. And I look at this and say, do you want a 35-minute-old steak and some broccoli and a baked potato? How's that going to reheat? How is your fish from Bonefish Grill going to be when you have to throw it in the microwave? Not every food works this way. So, I see delivery, if you're Panera Bread, and I could order 30 bagels and some sandwiches and those big things of coffee for the office, I see some logic in that. But Panera Bread, and we just talked about this, they charge $6 for delivery and they're across the street. It's because they don't want to bring you and I a cookie when we finish the show. They want us to order enough that $6 isn't a relevant number to Mm -hmm. the cost of the order. So, all these restaurants that are that are building around delivery unless they can change the technology so like the fries show up and i don't have to put them in the oven for 20 minutes cuz they're soggy and my steak isn't dried out or you know whatever it is like most food does not travel well and that's why we go to restaurants for or that's why you buy if you buy a ready to cook meal it's only 75% done and you have to finish it so this is one of those like fake holy grails it's like 3d television and you know, augmented reality and things that like seem like they're huge markets, but, but they haven't in, proven out They're yet. niches, they're mm. novelties. And from a technology point of view, there might be a day where I can get a plate from Outback Steakhouse, press a button, and it's hot, and it's just like I ordered it there. <laughs> but the reality is, if I get takeout from there, like I go and pick it up sometimes, and it is so much worse than if you eat at that already kind of mediocre restaurant.
0: So, okay, so takeaway here, um, you know, if you're an investor and you're reading through, uh, management comments from an earnings call, for example, and you see a specific restaurant mention, "Hey, delivery is going to be our next major pathway to growth, or a next uh, a big area that we're focused on, huge opportunity." Maybe take that with a few extra. Well, you've got
1: to look at their food. Mm-hmm. You know, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts and Panera have caterable food. Subway even has caterable food. So does you know? So yeah, if it's a sandwich place, if it's a if it's a pizza brand that wasn't doing a lot of delivery, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Pizza Hut didn't deliver or didn't significantly deliver. Mm-hmm. So if it's a brand like that, yeah. But if it's a sit-down, you know, semi-casual family restaurant or even more upscale, and they're talking about delivery, it becomes much more challenging. Yeah, and if it's a third party and there's little integration cost, and they say, "Geez, this could be a cherry on our Sunday, great. But if they're saying like Bloomin Brands is, we're going to invest heavily in this. And it's going to be our number two growth area. Ooh, that sets off a lot of warning bells to me. Yep.
0: Yeah. And uh, I will say though, for in terms of uh, an investor approach to this, you, know, you have Grubhub, so uh, they're pro- probably the leading name in this space. Uh, with that national presence, uh, I was impressed to see they have fifty thousand restaurant partners, over one thousand cities represented through their service. And here, this is a case where you're investing in their business model, where they're facilitating the. Essentially, the the transaction between the customer and the restaurant through a platform. You know, they're not worried about making the food or things along those lines, and so that seems like a much more sustainable model. And you know, the, in the past year, their stock has has recovered quite a bit from the lows of early twenty sixteen. I do
1: see Grubhub working because we talked about this in the eighties and nineties. Most towns got phone versions where you could literally call, place an order. You got like a big menu as part of your phone book or mm-hmm. or as a big mailing, and you can order, and they would. To get your order from maybe more than one local restaurant, and it would take two hours for your food to show up. That was a novelty. It was difficult to do. Who wants to call and place an order? Now that it's digital, and I can go into Grubhub and say, order what I ordered last time from the sushi place
0: And you have the optionality of all these different restaurant partners.
1: I used Grubhub when I lived in Connecticut, and it was harder to get to food three or four times a week. It was a very useful tool, and I see that market growing, but I also see a huge shakeout. There's no need for local services, Grubhub, Yelp, Uber Eats. Now, some of these, like Uber Eats, if it's a a tack-on to something else they're doing, there might be some business logic behind it, but I don't see any of these local people surviving because there's no scale, and there's no real reason to use a localized provider when they don't have significant exclusives. They might have one restaurant that Grubhub doesn't have, and Grubhub might have seven that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a place where the giants win, and Grubhub is leading that pack right now.
0: Sure, and I th- I think I'll end with the idea that you know as you have big entities like Uber and Amazon jump into this, uh, you know that'll be something to watch with grow up with this company they're going to have to invest a lot more uh, spend more to kind of keep up and make sure they're uh, kind of leading the pack in that sense so it'll be interesting to watch and, and i
1: could see them buying or even taking some ideas like uh, delivery dudes one of the local players near me i'm not sure how regional or big they are they have their own pantry so if i'm ordering and maybe i'm getting chinese food but i realize i need some you know so a, a 2 liter of coke and the chinese place carries pepsi and i want a milky way and a few other things You can fill in from sort of their house supply of, you could order milk and like some other things you might need. Okay, so you might see Grubhub borrow some of those ideas if they're already driving to your house, and they can also bring you printer paper. Well, there might be some benefit to that and some ways to expand upon what they do, because they already have the delivery cost. But other than that, I don't see any of you know. Anybody except Yelp and Uber and Grubhub really having a big, or maybe Amazon, having a big play at this.
0: Yeah, and uh, I will also note that for Grubhub, you know, they have already taken a pretty acquisitive model, you know. They've taken over Seamless. Uh, their portfolio also includes uh, restaurants on the run, dining in, delivered dish. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with that company. But thank you, Dan. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you can reach out to any of us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or send us any questions via email to industryfocus at fool.com. And don't forget to check out uh, podcast at fool.com for our other awesome content. People in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocksmen. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening for one.